Welcome, ladies and gents, to Middle Market Musings, a podcast dedicated to the people and ideas of the middle market. We're delighted that you've chosen to join us today. My name is Charlie Gifford of New Heritage Capital. And I'm Andy Greenberg of Greenberg Variations Capital. Today, we're speaking with Chris Ann Corbett, Managing Director of KPMG Corporate Finance. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsors, New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital. We hope you enjoy this episode. Sam Corbett, welcome to Middle Market Musings. Charlie, thanks, Andy. Really happy to be here. Good to have you. Well, we're delighted to have you here um, and excited for for our conversation. Um, Maybe you could start off by sharing a little bit about um, where you're from, where you grew up. I'm happy to. I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Both my parents are from, my mom a small town in Minnesota. My dad was born in uh, Minneapolis, so kind of where my roots were, but shortly didn't live there long. My dad had a job that kind of, we moved around a lot, lived in the Midwest, but really my formative years that I really remember, we moved to Wilton, Connecticut when I was in seventh grade and I was there through most of my college years. What did your dad do that um, sounds like you grew up in a number of different places. What did he do? Yeah, my dad worked for a candy company called Lifesavers. Um, and uh, beach nut and it was he ran marketing for them uh, and so he was always traveling around and i actually was in uh when i bubble yum came out i i'm probably dating myself but it was like this new gum we had to be in some ads for it i think i was in like first grade and uh, i loved it we loved having what, our dad what, 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 were you were you in an ad <laughs> for the uh candy or the gum yeah, for the gum, it just launched. We were on the news. It was a big deal when uh, Bubble Yum came out. So uh, my sisters and I and some other kids, we just had a chomp and blow bubbles. It was pretty pretty easy to do. Did you see that they, they just discontinued the uh, fruit-flavored gum? I'm not surprised, right? I mean, we loved it growing up. We ate it like Wait. crazy. And I never had a cavity, just so you know. All of our, na- all of our listeners come... Um, for this type of crack reporting, are you saying there's no fruit flavored gum anymore? W- w- go there. This is fascinating. My great bubble yum was the best. No, do you remember? You're you're old enough, Charlie. To re- you remember those 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 striped, super sugar permeated? Yeah, fruit fruit stripe. It was it yeah, was a re- and, and the end. It, it should be said product, that right? if you didn't have an if you didn't have an inn like your father working for the company where you could get a lot of it, I guess the flavor lasted like seven seconds on a good day. I think uh, if you ever so- look at my briefcase today, you'll see bubble gum in there. I'm a closet little just you know when you need a little hit of sugar, you know it lasts for like thirty seconds, but yeah, you know, yeah. So, um, Christian, did you have any? What was the Corbett house like growing up? How many were there kids in the house? Other brothers? Brothers and sisters? Pretty crazy. Four girls, one boy. I'm the oldest of four girls. There's not even five years separating us. So my parents had four girls in a pretty short order. And my brother came along like five years later. Wow. My sisters and I, of course, typical household cats and dogs fighting, especially in the high school years, but we're all super close now. Uh, it was fun. It was a fun house. We all, my dad, you know, grew up, I, you know, pretty, uh, pretty poor, I'd say. And uh, we just, we all start, but you marched us into places. We all got jobs. I and mean, as soon as like 15 and a half, we were all applying for jobs. So we all worked, you know, we all played sports. 
And uh, just a really, it was a great, I can't complain about anything about my childhood growing up. And it's nice to have a larger extended family, which, you know, is very different when I talk about, I only have one daughter right now, but it was nice to grow up with lots of chaos in the house. Must have been quite an adjustment though, in seventh grade to move from the, uh, from Minneapolis to Fairfield County. How, what was that like? I, it was intimidating because, you know, you feel like, you know, here I am coming in, you know, we moved there from, um, lived in the suburbs of Chicago and you don't know anyone and, you know, everyone looks so preppy and cool and, you know, just, uh, it's hard, especially at that age. Well, I think, I think that's a stereotype that Charlie and I, I we're, we're, we're picturing, we're picturing all, you know, all of your friends in Minneapolis being like little Francis McDormans in Far, you know, Fargo, like, you know, with oh, the, no, I was like in being Chicago super friendly the time, yeah. and, then, and then being among these like super preppy jerks in Connecticut. <laughs> Is that, are, are we like, are we embroidering too much onto the, no, the story? No, it just, maybe it's because I was in seventh grade and in middle school and it's just, you're going into a new school and you don't know anyone and everyone has those friendships already formed. And it's not like when you're in third grade, right? It's just harder to make those friends. And I did end up getting a step, you know, it did make, you know, really nice friends. Uh, but it took a while. It is. I mean, to be the eldest of four <laughs> girls, I mean, you, 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 uh, I, would you categorize yourself as type A? Oh uh, yeah, I was, but only cause I, my parents, I remember my dad had to go on a business trip. Like I forget, like overseas took my mom and I think I just turned 16 and I could drive. They were like, okay, you've got the kids. We'll be back. I mean, they were very responsible parents, but you know, they felt confident. So I was always kind of drove my my sisters around all the time to soccer practice. So was, like was, your, so, was, was your authority mm -hmm. tested in that scenario? All the time. They mostly listened to me, but I'm sure there was some shenanigans going on. So where'd you go to college? I went to Notre Dame. The only school I did not visit during my college journey. So I looked at, I applied to all other East Coast schools and uh, grew up watching it on TV. And uh when I got in, I just felt like this is a school for me. You know, I, I can't describe why because I'd never been, even been on the campus. How much you're a, I think you're a pretty big football fan too, correct? Yes. I grew up, you know, every Sunday watching the Vikings with my parents. That's yeah. just huge football fans. And we moved out to Connecticut. My dad took us to Giants games, our whole life, Yankee games, like just we watch. I listened to the Yankees on the radio, like falling to sleep. You know, I'm just a huge sports fan. So, but when you were applying and thinking about college, I would imagine the the, the prowess of the the Notre Dame football program was in the plus category for. A, oh, for it a definitely team. was probably the swaying factor for me, yeah. uh, Charlie. I said I want to go to school where, you know, just that looks has everything that I want to do, and then to go to a game on a Saturday, what what's better? So yeah, I I loved it. My best friends in life are still my group of eight Notre Dame friends. The girls, we still are super close. We get together. I mean, the people you meet there, they're just with you for life. It's a very good um, community. That the alumni community is excellent. Our, our razor sharp research effort talking to you beforehand, uncovered the fact that one of our recent guests, Andy Souter, RAF Equity in Philadelphia, was a classmate of yours. If you can, take us back to an on-campus scene, young Andy Souter, young Chris Ann Corbett, 
crossing paths. What would that have been? I met Andy at a party at his hall in Zom. I, I believe that's where I met him the first time because we were our dorms weren't that far apart and uh, just got to know him and we were always good friends. And I think he was a business major. I was pre-med most of my time through Notre Dame, but then I switched and I had him in more classes and uh, just we'd see him. We went to the same dining hall, you know, the dining hall. There's no, there wasn't there was no liquor at this party, right? It was like oh, talking not, about not current events. No, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> In fact, that's the only place you could drink at Notre Dame, you know, because they were so strict about the bar. So, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I think it was in one of their big triple rooms or something like that, as I recall. What did you do after you graduated from Notre Dame? So I switched. Um, I was pre-med for three years. And then a lot of my family are in the medical field doctors, especially on my mom's side. But three years of like with my roommates, mostly two of them were pre-med with me, but the rest are business majors. And I'd listen in their conversations. I'm like, am I even doing the right thing? So I said, I'm going to take a year and do some business classes. I switched to business my senior year and I loved it. So I just, you know, I just started interviewing my senior year and uh, turns out we were at, I, I don't mean this to be a drinking type of, you know, talk here, but I was at our main bar on campus called Senior Bar. I was 21 at the time. So um, we were talking. I was with my friends. I met these individuals and we hit it off. We were just talking. It turns out they were from Chase. I interviewed with them the next day and took the job. And that took me to New York. It was in their leverage finance group and uh, went to, through a credit training program after I graduated. But I kind of fell into it, uh, Charlie. It was no destined pre-planned. I just kind of got lucky and met them, interviewed with them and went to New York. That actual program was for, you said three or four months? Yeah, I, I think it was three, a little over three to four months. They ended up disbanding it several years later because they put all these kids through this program and then they get hired away, like investment banks or other places. And they just finally said, they, they kept shortening uh, the duration, but I got the full program. And I think it was almost like getting an MBA in three or four months, it, it, you know, very focused on finance and accounting, but it was a great program. This is one of the, the uh, well-worn themes that we come back to occasionally, just uh, the, the lamented loss of bank training programs as a as, as source of talent and direction for you know, people in our age bracket 20 plus years ago. Just doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't, I don't, firms just don't put the investment. It's mostly what you call on the job training. I mean, our firm, we, um, we, we reinvested our firm because we hire so many young people. We actually built our own hotel and training center down in Orlando. We call it the lake house. So we send our, like, even I'm going down in a couple of weeks for four days. We do, we've gotten better about sending younger people down there two or three times a year for a week at a time. So they get that. It's all classes that just classes training that they need it and they love it. Right. So it's on the job training is great, uh, but it's nice to have, you know, and it's also mm -hmm. bonding for them, the, all their peers, you know, across the country as well. So how long were you in um, at Chase in New York, Chrisanne? Two years, about two years. OK. And where did you go for thereafter? To Chicago, because I asked the head of our I. I knew that the individual that ran the Chicago office for Chase was a Notre Dame grad. And I sent him an email. No, I wasn't even an email. I think I called him and I asked the head of my group and I got on a call with him. 
this is Notre Dame grad and just told him everything I had done. He's like, come on out. So I moved to Chicago um, and uh, I worked there for about a year. And then I decided I got an offer from a Japanese bank. And I said, oh, I'd be like one of the few women there. And I said, it would be great to try it out. I went there for a year and then I went back. Then I decided I wanted to go to business school. And so I left. And went to business school booth, right? Yeah, I went to University of Chicago. And uh, I also thought it would be good to get some more business. And I did finance and accounting. Yeah. yeah. What, what was booth like? I mean, as a Kellogg grad, you know, we always say, oh, my God, those people booth, they work real. They It's a grind, as is Kellogg, but it's got a little bit of a different mix. And I always wonder whether or not that that reputation was, it, uh, was legit. Very analytical quant. I this is how I remember it was like nine percent women in my class. Very few women. Um, nine, nine, nine percent. And I wow. think, and I was just Notre Dame was maybe forty percent women. Um, so booth. I remember not being a lot of women. Very quantitative, which I liked. Right. I took you know classes from Martin Miller. You know, really good. You know, you got a lot. If you want to finance accounting stats, that's the place to go. It was good, but it was. It wasn't the love fest that I had at Notre Dame in terms of like, I've got some really good college friends that I'm still in touch with, but not, you know, like it was at Notre Dame. Everyone was there to get through their classes and get to the best jobs possible. But it was good. I love University of Chicago. I, I was really glad I chose it for myself. What did you do um, in between the two years that you spent at Booth? I went back to worked, worked at a bank and then you decided did. I was... That's when I was trying to figure out, do I want to do management consulting or do I want to go into invest? Like I was doing leverage finance really before this. And um, I, do I want to do investment banking? I was kind of torn between the two. Okay. So after your summer at Chase, what was the mm-hmm. thought process about uh, wh- where you were going to go from there? Oh, I just decided that I wanted to stay in Chicago. Uh, yeah. I knew I'd get, you know, I had offers to go back to New York, but I had a really good friend base. I love living in Chicago. I love the Midwest and decided I wanted to stay in Chicago. So I kind of focused my efforts and I didn't even know who KPMG was. I saw it and they had this M&A program for middle market, didn't know what any of it was. And I interviewed. And once again, like once you kind of connect with people you're interviewing, you hear the story, I really liked it and said, you know, I don't middle market. What's that? But they just, I think what grabbed me was that you'll be able to go to the client site. You'll get to work with the client. You won't be just sitting in the office like all day grinding spreadsheet. Chris Ann, who's someone who you connected with early on at KPMG? Who uh, yeah, my person I worked for was Bob Auer and stayed very close. He was my mentor my whole time at KPMG till he retired. He was phenomenal. I don't even think I was there a week and he took me on site to a company called World's Finest Chocolate that we were going to sell. And I just remember being on at a company site, Andy, with Bob and a few other members and meeting the owner and uh, his son and the family. And it was like, I'm like, oh, this is where I'm meant to be. So I just knew it was the right way because I got to see, I got to see everything. Over the years, we've had women who all three of us know prominent in our field, running firms and investment banking groups. And we talk about the experience of young women as financial professionals in our industry, going back more to the eighties and the nineties. 
one comment that I've kind of distilled was that there was a feeling like some of your, your, your compatriots, they could take being hit on, they could take being treated like a secretary, they could t- take being treated as somebody's daughter, but what they really missed was having the mentor who would lean into them and give them the kind of tough love that the guys got. And I wonder what you make of that, because it sounds like you got you got some of that favorable experience. Yeah, I, look, Bob was tough on me. I wanted him to be tough on me. And he was going to like, get your butt out of the office, go network yeah. with people your own age, not my age, right? And start building up your network. He really instilled that into this day where, you know, you want to be out there and networking and meeting people. And he really instilled that in me and really took it. Was, you know, even I remember my first, sim i sent to him and there was a vp yeah, yeah. it had came back with a lot of red back in those days they were handwriting it you know right on mm-hmm. the sheet i was like oh my god he's like this is how you learn and uh you know very i said just treat me like anyone else and he did and uh it was great yeah it was good that i had a mentor from day one that really kind of took an interest in my career and guided me but you know still is you know how i turned out um but he was big on the networking and being out in the market and I'm so glad he told me that. People on my team, I always give, get out there, meet your friends. These are the people, meet your network. Uh, these are the people that are going to follow you in your right. career. Meet, meet, your, meet your contemporaries. Meet your contemporaries, right? Because right. they're the ones that you're going to, and to this day, I mean, when I became, when I started, you know, VP, those, some of these individuals, you know, like yourselves, I mean, that you've just grown up with and you, right. you all look out for each other and you all work together. It's been, it's been a really good experience. I would imagine you're a mentor to many. Notre Dame's close, Booth's close. I would imagine you get are flooded with inbounds from kids, young adults looking to get into investment banking. I bet you could fill your day with coffees and conversations just providing advice. I get a lot of outreaches, but um, so our group does, but definitely from Notre Dame kids, I'll get a lot of outreaches or other young women that want to talk to a woman who's gone through, that come up the ranks in investment banking, what it's really like. So, and then every summer we have a bunch of Notre Dame grads here that work here in all different areas of the firm. And I usually am a mentor to one of them. You just, you seem to, I think as Charlie was alluding to, you, you seem to have a disposition that is uh, well-suited to it. Um, when you were younger, were you, did you have consciousness of, oh, I'm a woman, I'm a young woman professional in this field dominated by men? And, you know, were you aware that you were having an easier time than others? Or, or did you just sort of sail through it and not think about it in that way? Not as so much when I was an associate because you didn't really, maybe there were more women, but as I started like being promoted to VP and director, it seemed there weren't as many women, but um, my whole thing was just work hard, you know, work really hard. I was just taught that my whole life, work really hard, have a good attitude and care about the people around you and the people underneath, help bring them up with you. And that's just always been instilled for me. And, um, I think that's just, I mean, today, like when we hire people, attitude's like 80% of what I'm looking for, right? You know, everyone, if they come from a certain place, you figure they got the good skill set. But I'm all about having a really good attitude, working hard and positive outlook. 20 years ago, the way that we met peers, we went to an ACG event. Everybody was there. Partners of firms were there. 
Charlie Gifford wouldn't get, he wouldn't be caught dead on the floor of it. That's so not true. No, By the way, that's where I'm I met. I'm that's kidding. where I met you. No, I, I, I'm kidding. But as our industry has changed and the nature of networking has changed, what is the profile of an investment banking VP in your firm who's great at marketing today? What What is he or she doing? Well, I'd say the director on my team, he started as an analyst here maybe six years ago, seven years, he's already a director. Profile is came out of a corporate, and um, I remember he wasn't working directly for me. And this was back in 2017, 20. I was like, like everyone, really busy, and I needed some. I had a couple of deals. I'm like, I need some help. Can I get you know work with this person? And they put him on, and just the it was profile, really good attitude, works really hard, eager to learn more, very positive clients like you. You know what I mean? You go on these client sites. Likeability is a factor. I, you know, maybe with certain firms, not so much, but you still have to have some likability. You're going to be in the trenches with these clients for six months. So I think that just very similar uh, work ethic is kind of the people you find on um, my team. They get sick of me, but like I'm always big. I think, Charlie, I told you I'm a big sports person and I'm always like Michael Jordan's my idol. And, He's always, you read everything about him. He's always about like, you have to fail to be successful. But one thing he said that always sticks with me is, okay, heart is what separates the good from the the great. And like, just have good heart and dig in. And those are the people you want to work with. So Andy, that's kind of the profile of people. And that's my mentor of people I work with. We're very like that, very similar. You're listening to Middle Market Musings brought to you by New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital. Chris-Ann, share with us a little bit about kind of your 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 day job at KPMG. What do you oversee um, and um, where do you spend most of your time? Uh, so I spent about 80% of my time in the industrials, industrial tech space. Um, I co-lead the group. I co-lead industrials with another MD based in Baltimore, Rob White. And um, I, um, so very focused on that. And then I also, um, I think it was like, 15 years ago, they asked myself and another MD to start a coverage team. We didn't really have one. Maybe it was 2008. I went offline from doing deals for two years and we formed a coverage team to get to know all the relationships. And I did that. And that's still a piece of my time, but maybe 20%. So my but my day job is really um, industrials. You know, I cover certain sectors and a bit really kind of we're a global group. So like I said, I was running around the last week with one of our colleagues from a London office, but yeah, doing deals in the industrial tech space. Is it hard to uh, run coverage when it's only 20% of your day? I mean, we have other people in there that are more um, dedicated. So what I'm doing is high level. Do we have the right buyers on our, on our buyers list? I still look at all the lists before they go out, we go to market and, um, Also, are we targeting the right portfolio companies? Do we have the right groups in there? It's more from that, Charlie. But we have other people that are spending more time in it than what I'm doing. My boutique practice does more in industrial than anything else. But we we don't see the kind of volume a big shop like KPMG does. Give us a state of the union on pipeline expectations for coming out of a year where, you know, credit markets are kind of iced over. Performance a little spotty, volume down. How are you feeling about things in uh, 2024? 
if I looked into my crystal ball right now, Andy, I would say it's murky. It's hard, right? I mean, I think I feel like 2024 is going to be better than 2023. Um, and just kind of coming out of the gates, what we're seeing, we're seeing more private sellers right now than we are PE and corporate sellers, which we do a lot of work for corporate sellers. They're a big part of our, you know, sell side um, advisory, uh, what we do. Um, I would just say that, you know, the big thing we see is we see, you know, the financing markets feel better than they did last year. There's, if you've got a great asset, there's financing for it right now. It's more expensive, clearly. But I just think, you know, with all like, you know, we see kind of where inflation, geopolitical interest rates, at least we know they've probably probably steadied out. Hopefully they'll come down. Consumer confidence, you know, all that is still out there. And there's a reason we're not seeing, uh, you know, a big tsunami wave of deals right now, I think. So I think that what we do see right now is if you've got the nicest asset, a asset, you should be in market selling it. It will get as good a valuation or maybe even better. There's not very many. And those are doing very well. What we would say is if you've got anything below that, they can get done, but it's taking longer. Buyers drive out much quicker. <laughs> you know, for mm -hmm. diligence items, I feel like the bar on diligence is so elevated right now, if you're going to do a deal in these markets, right? So the diligence is, you know, ultra at an ultra high level right now. So I think, and then really, I think the other reason we haven't seen so many deals, a lot of companies, you know, were down last year from a revenue standpoint, you know, I mean, industrials, there's a lot of destocking trends that affected a lot of the uh, articles that I follow. Where even if they were down five or ten percent, you're not going to sell in that. You're not going to sell, right? You're going to wait. Well, I I I think that was the greatest dampener on deal volume last year. I mean, the, the combination of performance off, of, you know, depending on the business, record highs in twenty one, twenty two, performance down a little bit, multiples tightened up. Not a great combination for the private business owner. And the buyer-seller expectations are still right. <laughs> far apart. Right. You know, we, we do a lot with these private sellers and they they know, they, they had an expectation, especially if they were thinking about selling in 2019 or 2020, and maybe they got hit by supply chain or, you know, um, you know labor issues and they, they held off selling. Um, there's a little still a bit of a disconnect in the valuation expectations. But company performance is what we see um, talking to owners, you know, they hit, hit a fourth, maybe little, you know, down in Q4 or whenever. So now we're seeing some of them have come out of maybe destocking issues or whatever it was affecting the performance of their company. And now if they're looking to sell, they're looking into this. Now you want to sell to 2024, right? So it's going to be a second half yeah. for some of the companies that we're talking to. So it's, it was, you know, I, it will be interesting to see what plays out here in 2024. There are definitely, everyone knows there's sellers that want to sell, but you know, it's just, when's your when's the right time for your business to truly be in the market? Christine, you've been at KPMG uh, for th 30 or so years. Yeah. yeah. Share with us, if you will, a little bit about kind of the, the culture there and the partnership that you enjoy with your colleagues and, do you feel like it's pretty consistent across the firm? Is it different in different offices? How do you all coexist and, and mesh with the audit partners? Well, so KPMG did KPMG today is three divisions, audit, tax, and advisory. We're an advisory, which is the biggest and fastest growing piece of KPMG. So 
I would say we don't mesh. I, it's, I, that's not the right word, mesh. We, um, we mostly work with our advisory colleagues, not to say tax, you know, we just don't work with our audit clients. That's just a compliance role. We can sell to them, no problem, Andy. But I would say across the firm in general, there's a very good culture. It's very employee-centric. It's very global in nature, which I love. Very women-friendly. We have, we've won a lot of awards for, you know, you know, women. And um, I love, I can't imagine being anywhere where we weren't truly global, right? I mean, I've got colleagues I've worked with 20 plus years and, you know, in Tokyo and Singapore and in London. We were just on with our colleagues this morning in Johannesburg. I love that. And that's one of the reasons I've stayed so long and grown up with a lot of my colleagues that I've worked for 20 plus years. Chris Ann, in our conversations before we started, um, uh, we learned that you like to run marathons and collectively among the three of us, we have run eight of them. Uh, that would be zero for Andy, zero for me and eight for you. Um, you know, you didn't ask me, you just assumed. Oh, by the way, I did not ask I you. hadn't run it. How'd I do? How'd I do? You were accurate. You yeah, exactly. Got. Okay, good. I think uh, Charlie like is a strong word. It's kind of like I've done them and you feel really good after you run one and you kind yeah. of want to run another one in different cities. So um, it, it's, yeah, I guess I like it. It's, I kind of like more the training and getting ready for it because it's kind of fun building up for it. And then it's fun going to a different city and, and running that marathon. Although I've run New York three times, I think, and uh, I've only run Chicago once because I run here all the time. So I Okay. So you've got three New York, one Chicago. Where else have you, uh, did you do Marine Corps? LA. I've done, no, I want to do a Marine Corps. I've done LA several times in San Diego and uh, Madison, Wisconsin. What's your PB or PA or whatever it is? What, what's your, my whole goal is to break four hours and I've done 403 and, uh, so I'm always, it, it's, it was when I ran New York, you got to get across the bridge off Staten Island. I, you always lose a little time there. So I'm close. I'd love to break four hours on one marathon. Do you feel like right now, are you a better runner than you were when you were in your first marathon? Oh, definitely. I just try not to train way smarter, right? And I'm also doing like, you got to do other things. You got to do strength training. That's something they don't tell you that that really helps you. Interesting. <laughs> Which what, what one marathon have you not run that you hope to run? London, for sure. Oh, really? I do one. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my goal. Hopefully, twenty twenty five. That will be. Uh, I can't con anyone into running it with me. I've been trying to get people to run it with me. Don't well, we're takers. Maybe you can get sponsored by Middle Market Musings, and we could run <laughs> along with you. Yeah. I guarantee I you, it. it'll make you feel really good about yourself if you ran <laughs> next to Andy and I. Yeah, I know. Are you guys, please come along. I would love to have some company. That's fun. If, That's uh, cool. Um, tell us about the London Marathon. What uh, since all, all three of us uh, love London, what is the sizzle of the London Marathon? It goes through the city, out you know, out to some of the you know outer areas as well. I just thought if I want to go and be in a city that I love, I love London. I'm there for work a fair amount. I've been there for vacation. I have friends there. It would be a fun one to run, Andy, where you have some kind of infrastructure there, people that. Just it's it's pretty flat, I think, like Chicago as well, which I like. I don't need to go run a San Francisco marathon at this point. I don't want hilly. And I just think the, you know, the all the areas you'd run would be phenomenal. So uh, 
that's just on my bucket list. It's very hard to get into as well. So here, here's a uh, London-based artifact that not even a fact that not even Charlie uh, knows. My uh, mother was a huge Anglophile admirer of the young queen. So I have a sister named Elizabeth, and the queen had her third son like six months before I was born. Being named a, being named after Prince Andrew does not have the cachet. Doesn't have the allure <laughs> that it may have once. People, <laughs> I don't lead That's with that. Really I, don't, funny. I don't lead. I, with, I don't lead with that anymore. I'm grateful to know that little tidbit. I'll, I'll return. I'll return, sir. I'll hear something about that again, though. That's very funny. I'm so glad you shared that. But when I was a Ute, I got I spent um, grades three through seven in London, and I was always known by Charlie. Uh, but when I moved over there, my parents I, I told my parents that I wanted to change my name and be known as Charles because that's what people in England were called. Nobody called them Charlie. And so I used to bring my friends home, you know, like to, to hang out at my house. And they called me, every, my family called me Charlie. And they were, all my friends were like, Charles, why are they calling you Charlie? Isn't that embarrassing? It's like, why did I change my name to Charles? It's very that's bizarre. That's hilarious. But at, least I wasn't, but at least I wasn't named after somebody on Jeffrey Epstein's hit list, but we, we don't have to go there. I thought you were going to say you were, I I thought you would pick like such more embarrassing That's why name. That's like, Andy now. When I was uh, in high school, I, parents took my younger stepbrother and me to uh, England and Scotland for a great three and a half week uh, trip. We're in London at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. And there's like this this old guy missing most of, most of his teeth, very practiced Hyde Park orator, who like literally has a carton. He's on his carton, and he's just railing against the United States, and that's like soft and pampered we were. And I'm like a scrawny high school kid. This this is one of my stepfather's like greatest moments in life. So this guy is like spittles flying out of his mouth as he, he talks about how soft Americans are. And I'm like 17 years old, standing in front, and all I say is, I bet you weren't saying that in 1940 when you were begging us to get into World War II. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy, he, he draws to a stop. It's like a Monty Python character. He's used to working in the crowd. Yeah. And he like look, looks at like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he looks at the, this the scrote at, at his feet. I love it. And he, he says he says to the crowd, I won't do an English accent. He says, you know, you you watch American football on TV and you see these big muscular men. And when they take off their pads and helmets, this is what they look like. <laughs> that was his comeback. That was his comeback. Uh, so what's your, what's the what's the hidden gem in London that our listeners should know about that things that you guys have done but since you're both Anglophiles? Well, I'm a big World War II buff, so the Churchill War Rooms are a hit with me. Anything about that, I love to see London Tower. Just, Super cool. You know, it's just there's so much history there, right? You know, yeah. not that the U.S. doesn't have it, but not you know what they did. You know what was bombed during the war, all that. But I'm a huge fan of. Uh, that's what I like to do when I'm over there. Well, 
All right. So Charlie, so you're you're an art person. The the new Tate Gallery. Where do you what's what's your go to for art in uh, London? It's funny you say that. I don't. I want to be very clear. I am not an art person. My wife is, so I get dragged to places that she wants to go. And we were actually, um, we were there for Thanksgiving because our middle is studying over in London, and we went to the Courtauld Gallery. Is that have you guys ever heard of this? I've heard of it, yeah. Oh, my God. It is stunning, and it's small, and it's got a collection. It's, like, right by Waterloo Bridge and the Strand, and it was super fun. I, For our listeners, both of them, uh, they should definitely check that out. Courtauld Gallery. What kind of art uh, is it? it good, good stuff. Just the good stuff. <laughs> no, it's all a lot of Dutch masters, impressionists. I mean, all the, all the fancy people that even guys like me know, like, you know – uh, Renoir and Van Gogh and Degas and it's really cool. <laughs> Don't ask me any more questions. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't expect to get into short water with you so quickly. On the yeah, by the way, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the tide's going out, and I'm not wearing a bathing oh, yeah, suit. Let's use, stop talking. They use all the, the colors. Water. They're they're Let's... they're they're reds. They're yellows. They got they got sky. <laughs> this is me swimming to deeper water. Um, Christian, I'm not in art either, so I can't help you, Charlie. Yeah, but, oh, by the way, you know what? I, I've seen it often, you know, I'm a strong believer of the occasionally right, never wavering, and I can't even, you know, BS my way out of those types I, of conversations. But I would say in terms of art, I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan. So when I was oh. there this summer, I went to Richmond and uh, went to go check out all the sites. So that's my version of art. Uh, you know, I went to oh, go see. Uh, so that was, uh, that's another thing I liked that I got to do this past summer. And I was up over there. Well, sticking with the, um, the athletic theme, if I could wave a wand and grant you a wish and that wish being any of the sports teams that you are very fond of could win their respective championship over the next 12 months, which one would it be and why? It's this is almost not a fair question, Charlie, because of course I've got to go with my alma mater. We have a new coach who will be in his third year, Marcus Freeman. And I feel like we had a really good year this past year. We almost beat Ohio State. We, you know, we, we look good. I, I'm going to go for another thing to finally maybe get a national championship. It's been a while. Yeah. How did it make you feel when Michigan won? I know they're not direct rivals, but there's always rivalry. You know, they were always a rival, especially anyway. We haven't played them for five years. They're going to get back on our schedule. I mean, they're not as big of a rival as USC, but they are. They're a good rival for Notre oh. Dame. Look, so, I was definitely. I I was rooting for Michigan. They're a good rival, sure. good Midwest school. You know, uh, so I definitely was rooting. I'm sure your friend Gretchen Perkins. Yeah, Gretchen. I'm sure your friend Gretchen Perkins approves of that answer. I'm on a little group chat with Gretchen, Gretchen and uh, Rich Prestigard, and we were we were on the chat the whole game, rooting for it. her and rooting for Michigan. And then last night we were rooting for the Lions, which unfortunately did not go their way. Oh. Oof, we could spend an hour talking about that game, but I think by the time this come out, it might yeah. be old news. But that so was a tough Char- one for the Leos fans. Charlie, what? Charlie, what is your answer to the question you asked, Chris Ann? Which, or I should say, which of the championship gorged? undeserving Boston teams would you like to see? Well, let's go in reverse order. It's not the Philadelphia Eagles or the Philadelphia Phillies or the Philadelphia Sixers or God, no, not the Flyers. I don't know. I I think I oddly, it'll be an answer that you don't expect. I think it'd be actually the Boston Bruins because when they won, um, the city was turned upside down 
in a very very different way when the Celtics and the Bruins and the uh, Red Sox and the Patriots won their world their, their championships. It's a it's a different fan base and people it went bananas when they won. One, Charlie, it was pandemonium. Yeah. Different yeah. than even when the Bulls won or the Cubs, you know, the, uh, won the World Series. It was yeah. craziness when it, the Blackhawks. It's weird because I feel as though that there's a lot of crossover between like football and baseball fans and even basketball fans of this show. But, you know, they're Bruins fans that are, you know, the Bruins are most important and they like don't even, I mean, they like the other sports, but God, they love their hockey team. So that would be super fun. How about you? How about you, Andy? Uh, the, you, are, are you going to choose? You're going to choose Browns wrestling team, or well, what's going? What's the answer? <laughs> Phillies, the Phillies. Uh, I, I think they they've done the most things right. I'd like to, uh, I'd like yeah. to see them uh, win. But you know, I, I mean, I've I've been to see all the Boston smart uh, uh, teams, and I am with you on the Bruins. They they love the Bruins in Boston. It may be the affinity for like Flyers, Blackhawks. Bruins. Maybe there, there are some well-paid hockey play, uh, players, but the average hockey player is way closer to the average fad than is his counterpart in any other sport. So people, you know, there are a lot of guys who like, you know, they go home, their mom makes dinner, they do PlayStation, <laughs> they go play hockey. <laughs> Very easy to relate to. Well, I, one little fact is um, I, I am a huge baseball fan with football, and I do like hockey too, but I tried to get my daughter to every baseball stadium in America before she yes. graduated high school. And um, I think I fell short on like, we're going to still do it, like seven stadiums. So that's a little we are. All right. So yeah. far, best stadium uh-huh. and most overrated stadium. Uh, best stadium. Um, I, Charlie, I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but I love Fenway. I have to say besides Wrigley, I would say Fenway. You're a woman of great, you're a woman of great judgment. Yes. Love. And I like the older stadiums. Uh, and I don't love the new Yankee stadium. I have to say my daughter graduated there last summer and I've been to a couple games there or last uh, spring. And so doesn't have the character of the old Yankee stadium that I used to go to growing up. I couldn't agree more. I was the old Yankee Stadium. The old Yankee Stadium, when you went there as a, especially as a visiting team, mm-hmm. it's just that it, it it was intimidating. Now it's it's so big, and they're so far removed from the field of and play. The field, you don't feel, and it's the same thing with the White Sox stadiums. If you've been to it, it's horrible. You just yeah. regularly you're like on the field, right? Yeah, yeah. Chris and we we've all known one another for a long time. It's been just a, a delight having you on the podcast. Thanks, Chris Ann. Super fun. You're a great sport and uh, time really well spent from our spot. So thank you. Well, I'm very honored that you asked me and this was, it went by way faster than I thought. So thank you for including me. It was great to talk with you, Andy and Charlie. This was awesome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Middle Market Musings. We'd like to extend our sincere thanks to Chris Ann Corbett for joining us today as well as our sponsors, New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital. Thanks as well to our editor, Jason Zapolo. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd encourage you to like and follow Middle Market Musings on Spotify, Apple, or whichever provider you use to access podcasts. And of course, feel free to share with your friends. Thanks again and look forward to catching you on the next one.